Last Sunday, one week ago, 20 gunmen stormed a church service in Burkina Faso in West Africa. They took the lives of 24 worshipers, including the pastor, last Sunday morning. 18 others were injured, and numerous others were kidnapped and taken away. Sadly, that sort of story is is not isolated. If you're paying attention to what's going on around the world and really what has been going on for the past 2,000 years, this is what Christians face. Not every Christian faces the same uh, persecution in the same way or even in in requiring their, their own lives, but this is happening all over the world. How is the congregation that's remaining supposed to think? How, how are the families and the friends supposed to, to reflect upon this sort of, of event that has marked the pages of Christian history? As God's people cry out, how long, O Lord, will this, this sort of bloodshed of your, your people, how long will it go on? Into that, God speaks. He gives this book of Revelation. This book that is intended to clarify for God's people who He is and what He's doing. And also to equip them to be strengthened in their faith that they might know how to respond in the face of such persecution. Whether it be persecution exactly like this, what our brothers and sisters are facing in West Africa and elsewhere. Whether it be the various sorts of persecution that we face. How do we continue to trust Christ and to cling to Him? How can our faith be strengthened as we continue to proclaim the Word of Christ, awaiting Him to return and to prove true on all of His promises? What are we supposed to do? How is the church supposed to think? I believe that's what Revelation chapter 11 is really all about. As we've been watching through the book of Revelation, we have seen God telling these seven churches who He is and what He is doing. And He is showing history time and time again through these different cycles, repeating cycles of, from, that run from the, the resurrection of Christ to His return and different themes that they, are, uh, in, in necess- that they need to, to know about how to persevere and how to faithfully trust Him and to continue to be uh, witnesses of His Word as they await His return. And this morning in Revelation 11, we found ourselves in the, the second cycle. It began in chapter 8. There are, uh, that runs through chapter 11. There are seven trumpets in this section. We have seen six of them. They are blown to, to warn the world that judgment is coming, much like in the days of Jericho. Judgment is coming. We saw these six plagues, or these six trumpets that have Exodus-like plagues being blown in the earlier chapters. Then the last time we were together in Revelation in chapter 10, we saw this angel with a scroll that comes to encourage John to continue prophesying. And here in chapter 11, we are going to see two witnesses at a temple that I think are intended to encourage us to continue proclaiming the Word. Let's follow along as we read Revelation chapter 11. I'm going to read verses 1 through 14. We will be going through the end of the chapter. We'll pick that up when we get to that a little bit later on. Let's begin in verse 
Verse 1, this is John speaking. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff. And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations. And they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them to be placed in a tomb. Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to, the, to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Revelation chapter 11 has been called by many the most difficult chapter in the book to figure out and to explain and to apply. I think the reason for that is there are a lot of mysterious details. You probably noticed some of them. I'll do my best as we walk through to highlight what seems best interpretation on these, these details are, but I think one of the things that, one of the traps that we can fall into when we come to the book of Revelation is to get so caught up in the details that we miss the main message. We miss the reason that all of this is given. And I think, really, of all of the chapters, Revelation chapter 11 is one of the clearest in regards to what it's about, and what it means for us, and how it ought lead us to respond as God's people. So if I was going to summarize what this, this chapter is all about, I'd, we might do it like this. God will build His church by His Word through His messengers despite persecution. God will build His church by His Word through His messengers despite persecution. This is, in one sense, the real message of the book of Acts and and onward. That Jesus is building His church, and though the gates of hell 
prevail or press against it. They will not prevail and not take over because his word will not return void and it will be proclaimed through his messengers. This is what we see here in the book of Revelation chapter 11. Now, I'm going to come back to these, but I'm going to go ahead and highlight the three, I think, most reasonable interpretations, approaches to interpreting this this section of Scripture. The first is to see these events described here in Revelation 11 as having taken place in the past. That this is the temple prior to 70 A.D. being destroyed by Rome, and these are two prophets who spoke and did miracles in those days. That's one view. The second view is that this is all future. There is a temple that is to be rebuilt in Jerusalem someday, and there are two unique prophets who uh, raised up in a way that is yeah, distinct, and they are um, quite, quite unique, just in light of all the things that we, we see here. Or the, the third is the approach that we've been taking all the way through the book of Revelation, is that this is in, intended to be interpreted symbolically. That these are symbols. That the book of Revelation is a picture book. That John is seeing a vision. And these symbols are intended to communicate themes. And that that is what we are seeing here. And that this is figurative of the church age. From the moment of the resurrection of Christ till His return. And I'll unpack that. So that's the grid that I'm coming through. That third one as we walk through this. I'll try to tip my hat to other views as we go. But we want to not miss This big idea that God is building His church by His Word through His messengers despite the persecution that's coming against the church. First thing we should notice here is the measuring of the temple. The the measuring of of the temple. John here is given a a measuring rod and he's told in verses 1 and 2 to measure the temple and the altar and the worshipers. Now, again, One of the questions I hope we're learning to ask as soon as we see stuff like this in the book of Revelation is, where is that in the Old Testament? Remember, you best understand the book of Revelation not by asking where is this in the news, but where is this in the Old Testament? And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you would right away would pop in your mind, this is from Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48. Where Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, was set on a high mountain and he was approached by an angel and he had a measuring reed in his hand and he took Ezekiel on a tour of the temple and he was to measure the temple of God. And what temple was that? Well, you got to remember, Ezekiel was in exile. He was seeing a future temple, but it wasn't even going to be the one that was going to be rebuilt by Herod, but it was one beyond that a temple, a new future glorious temple to which chapter 43 of Ezekiel tells us that the glory of the Lord will return in a unique way. That's the temple that's in view in Ezekiel and I believe here with John as well. John is told to do the exact same thing that Ezekiel was told to do. He's to take this rod and to march around and to to measure the temple. So what is this temple that John sees? Well again, There's two primary interpretations uh, if we don't take the past view, but if there's one would be that this is a literal future temple in Jerusalem that John is getting a vision into what will come. There are some who believe that the temple in Ezekiel 40 and here in Revelation 11 is a literal physical temple that will be rebuilt someday in in Jerusalem uh, where the Dome of the Rock is, is currently located. 
To be clear, this, that was my former view. So in days gone by, this is what I used to hold to. It's not what I hold to anymore. Now, I certainly want to say that there could be a temple that could be rebuilt there in Jerusalem. There's plans being made for that among Jewish uh, rabbis even today. Um, but I, I don't think that's what's in view here in John's vision. Rather, I see this as a metaphorical present picture of the church. The temple that John sees is symbolic. It's metaphorical, which, by the way, is consistent with the way that God is communicating about his church all the way through the book of Revelation. It's really interesting. The temple is mentioned some nine times in the book of Revelation, and it is never talking about a physical building. It's either talking about the heavenly temple in the present, or the, I'm sorry, it's actually mentioned 11 times, or the dwelling of God's uh, presence among his people in the future. The temple is another word that's often used in the New Testament for the church. Some six times the church is described as the temple of God, 2 Corinthians 6.16. We are the temple of the living God. Ephesians 2.21, we are growing into a holy temple in the Lord. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, you like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, a.k.a. temple, to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It is no stretch to call the temple the church because that's what the Bible does numerous times. The altar is where worship happens. These who are worshiping are the Jews and the Gentiles gathered together in one body. So what I think we have here in this opening uh, couple verses is John has a vision. And he is called to measure this, this temple that represents the church. Now why does God want him to measure it? Well, similar with, similar with Ezekiel, well, Ezekiel went around, and if you want like, details of what it looks like to measure a temple, go ahead and read Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48. There's all kinds of details there. He's walking around measuring door jams and everything. And Ezekiel's going to walk away with that. This is real. This is coming. The same sort of thing, I think, is the impression that John and the seven churches and we are supposed to have as we get this vision in our, in our mind, this picture here. God wants wants us to see and to consider this place that belongs to God, this place where His glory dwells, this place where the worship of the true God happens. He's providing evidence that He will build His temple in its fullness. It will prosper. It will be protected despite the fact that it will be attacked. Revelation 2, he says, uh, I'm sorry, Revelation 11:2 says to him here, do not measure the court outside the temple. The outside court is still part of the temple, but it's exposed to the world. I think it's highlighting here that the inside is protected, though the outside is vulnerable to attack. Leave that out. It is given over to the nations. They will trample the holy city for 42 months. This city that is set apart as the people of God, will be besieged in this age. This has been the testimony of Christians ever since, ever since Pentecost. The church has been attacked physically, yet sustained spiritually. This reference to the holy city here, it's used elsewhere in the book of Revelation of the church. Revelation 21, 2, 
I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The church is the, is the bride of Christ. God and His people dwell together. This is the picture here. This, this vision that John is having in Revelation chapter 11 isn't geographically focused on the city of Jerusalem in the Middle East where there's a temple. Rather, these are symbols, just like he's doing all the way through the book of Revelation, that are personally oriented around the church. This church who is protected and yet persecuted. Now, what are these 42 months? Well, everyone knows that if you add up all the numbers in Revelation and divide by 7 and multiply by 40, that will give you the date that Jesus returns. Okay? So, no, that's not true. That's not how you're supposed to treat these numbers, okay? That's not true, just in case somebody tried to, you know, no. When you hear numbers like this, we're not supposed to get out our stopwatches and our calculators. We're supposed to ask, where is that in the Old Testament? That's what you're supposed to ask. You're supposed to ask, where is this in the Old Testament? Well, it's interesting. These numbers that show up here, 42 months, uh, 1,260 days, three and a half years, they all refer to a period of tribulation prophesied in Daniel chapter 9. Which if you want to listen to all about that, Dan, uh, uh, John Henderson preached on Daniel chapter 9 last year. Listen to it. He'll give you, he'll give you what all this means. Um, but it is, it's a time of tribulation that begins at the resurrection of Christ and ends at the return of Christ. It's a time of judgment on unbelievers, and it's a time of sustaining the faithful during Israel's history. This also three and a half years, which is 42 months, and it's a 1,260 days, which we'll see mentioned in just a moment. When we hear that three and a half years, it should also make us think of something else. Elijah and his ministry, his ministry of judgment on the unbelieving nation of Israel that sealed up the rain from heaven for three and a half years. It's going to be interesting because here in just a minute we're going to see some witnesses that look a lot like Elijah. Well, we could get into numbers, but I just think that's, this is what we're supposed to see. This is a period of tribulation that is echoing Daniel chapter 9. Now, one of the themes that we're about to see begin to really um, become more prominent in the book of Revelation, it's going to begin here, and it's going to get turned up all the way through the book, is this theme of satanic and demonic attack on the church. The church is going to endure physical attack, persecution, suffering. Yet, measure the temple. God will protect them. He will keep them uh, secure spiritually as they faithfully witness about Jesus. This section, though it's strange, don't lose the forest for the trees. If you see what God is trying to show us here, this is intended to be a great encouragement for the suffering church. Revelation chapter 11 would be a great passage for that church uh, in, in West Africa to even hear the days ahead, to strengthen them, to know that God has not forget, forgotten them. This is, Revelation 11 is, if you will, a virtual reality picture of Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What's that look like in a picture? Revelation chapter 11. 
This is what God will do. The temple of God, the church, the people of God are assaulted on every side, yet they are secure in the hands of the Lord Jesus. Go and measure it. See. While God's church is being persecuted, they are to be prophesying. They will suffer, but they are to stand and to speak of Him as long as they have breath. Which is the other thing that we need to notice in this opening section. There's messengers of truth here. So we, we saw you, you measure the temple in order to show that it is indeed true and it's going to be secure, though the outer court is going to be attacked and afflicted, yet the inside is held fast. Well, there's also these interesting messengers that show up. Um, so if you're drawing pictures, I'm really hoping for some pictures of the, uh, the messengers here. Verse, verse 3, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Again, this, this vision at the temple, there's two witnesses who prophesy for 1,260 days, which is the same as 42 months. They're both going on at the same time. They're talking. These witnesses talking corresponds to the trampling. They're prophesying parallels the persecution. They're going on at the same time. Preaching and persecution. Preaching and persecution. Preaching and persecution. This is what marks the church of Jesus Christ from the resurrection to the return. Now, who are these messengers? Well, one option is these are two Christian prophets who died just before the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. Another option are these are two Christian prophets who will appear prior to the second coming. Some believe it's Moses and Elijah coming back for round two. Others believe it's Enoch and Elijah coming back for another round. Others believe it's just unique prophets that are raised in those last days who do extraordinary things. Or the third view, which is the view that I'm proposing, is that this again represents a church who serves as Christian witnesses who speak on behalf of God from the time of the resurrection to the time of the return. Again, Revelation is a picture book. He's communicating to his church through visions of symbols and metaphors that are intended to ask us, where is that in the Old Testament? So when you see these two prophets, these two witnesses here, you're supposed to say, okay, where are they in the Old Testament? And then he gives you a clue in verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Well, that's a clear reference to Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah chapter 4. In Zechariah 4, Zechariah the prophet, he sees two olive trees that are supplying fuel for the fire of the lampstand so that it can continually provide light to the nation. Those two olive trees in the book of Zechariah are Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel the governor. The priest and the king are anointed by the Holy Spirit to stand before the Lord of the earth and to proclaim message. That's what we see happening in Zechariah in, yeah, in chapter, chapter 4. John is being shown 
these two witnesses, and he would automatically think of them because he's familiar with the Old Testament. He's being shown a similar picture here. These two witnesses are empowered by the Holy Spirit so that their lampstands can burn brightly. The church in the book of Revelation has been referred to as a what? A lampstand. You remember we had the first three chapters? It's all over the place. And they are fueled by the Holy Spirit. It's the same kind of picture. These two witnesses are, are the fulfillment of those two uh, speaking prophets pictured there in Ze- Zechariah chapter 4. It's also interesting that they're the, the priest and the king, if you will. Because Revelation chapter 1 and chapter 5 calls the church a kingdom of priests. So just like these two olive trees in Zechariah chapter 4, these two uh, witnesses, these prophets speak. Now, just a, word of, just a word of pause here. If you're brand new to Christianity, the book of Revelation is different than lots of other uh, books. This book is uniquely difficult to understand, I think especially for us, for one primary reason. We don't know our Old Testament super well. When you read through this book, it assumes that you have a thorough working knowledge of every promise that God has ever made to his people all the way through the, through the Old Testament. Some 613 allusions to the Old Testament throughout this 22-chapter book. God wants his people to know, every promise I've ever made, I will keep. So this is not intended to discourage you if you read this and you're like, I'm about to lead a community group on this. I don't know what to do. Jesus, help me. That's exactly how I felt while I'm about to preach this, okay? These are depths that are difficult. But one of the beauties of God's revelation in his word is that you can never touch the bottom. You can never touch the bottom. So commit your lives to studying the scriptures. And the more that you do, the more these things will become clear. Now, why two witnesses? Well, the question you should ask is, where is that in the Old Testament? Well, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you need to know that in an official uh, court of law, you need to have two or three witnesses. Well, here are two. These are supposed to resemble the great prophetic witnesses of Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, right? Just as God sent two angels to testify to the resurrection in Luke chapter 24, and there were two angels to testify of his return at Acts chapter 1. Here we have these two witnesses symbolically representing the church. Now just some of the things you may have noticed about them. They're clothed in sackcloth. Just like Elijah and um, his fulfillment, John the Baptist, these witnesses as the church, we the church, these witnesses are to be marked by mourning over sin over the sin of of people and the reality that judgment is to come. These prophets are wearing sackcloth because judgment is coming. Turn from your sin or expect the wrath of God. These prophets are also here given authority. They're given authority. These prophets, these witnesses, the church doesn't represent themselves. They are ambassadors, as 2 Corinthians chapter 5 calls us, ambassadors of the Almighty. These witnesses, the church, speaks on behalf of God's, on behalf of God. We have the keys of, his, of, the, of the King. 
We have the keys of the kingdom, Matthew chapter 16, chapter 18 tell us. We have this authority. We're speaking. This is, this is why the church should not just make stuff up. The church has one job. Take what we have received and proclaim it to the glory of God and the good of the nations. This is what we're to do. We're to be faithful with what we've been entrusted. The authority is wrapped up in the gospel message as proven through the resurrection of Christ. So they're given authority. They also speak prophecy. We see in verses 3 and 10, these witnesses are also called prophets. Where is that in the Old Testament? Well, Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2 speaks and foretells of the last days in which the Holy Spirit will empower and will indwell and empower God's people to prophesy. Joel 2. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. That's quoted in the New Testament in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit falls upon them and everybody thinks they've just been drinking since they woke up and Peter's like, listen y'all, this is not people being drunk. God's Spirit is falling upon them just as Joel said it would happen. This is the message that you hear proclaimed. And what's being proclaimed there in Acts chapter 2? The gospel. The good news. They are witnesses that Jesus rose from the dead. He's king. He's Lord. Bow a knee to him. These witnesses, the church, is to be proclaiming that. We are witnesses that Christ has been raised from the dead. The church's role now on earth is to authoritatively declare the wonderful good news of the gospel. That Jesus lived a perfect life, unlike the one that any of us have ever lived. That he suffered on the cross He died the death that we deserve, taking the judgment of sinners, and he went into the grave, and then he rose three days later, and that if no matter where you've been or what you've done, if you will turn from your sin and believe upon him, you will be forgiven and reconciled to God. You will no longer be his enemy because of your rebellion, but you will be his child through redemption. That's good news, and the church can proclaim that. So we can stand up here and say, God will forgive you if you will forsake your sin because Jesus paid for it and he rose to prove he has authority to forgive. We can say that and it has the authority of heaven. This is what Christians do. This is what we proclaim. Now what's up with this fire breathing thing, huh? They're breathing fire. What is, what is this? Well, You should probably ask, where is that in the Old Testament? Jeremiah chapter 5, the prophet Jeremiah, who's been raised up to speak words of coming judgment upon God's people. God says this, I am making my words in your mouth a fire, and this people would, and the fire shall consume. These witnesses are acting as Jeremiah in the Old Testament, proclaiming words of judgment that are coming. And those who refuse to repent and to receive Christ are not consumed on the spot, which, praise God for that. You know why? Because nobody'd be here. That's why. This is why we're thankful that this message of the gospel, when it goes out, it doesn't just automatically consume us if we don't receive it. But, Do not be deceived. The word of the gospel that goes out and promises forgiveness also promises if you do not receive Christ, judgment is coming. And this message is a foretaste of the fire that is to come and will consume those who do not believe. 
We also see here that they are miracle workers. Now, God certainly does work miracles in our day. But it seems here that as we read this, again, we're supposed to consider what these miracles represent and where we see it in the Old Testament. These echo the ministry of Elijah withholding rain and Moses calling down plagues on unbelieving Egypt. In this sense, the church aligns with them and anticipates judgment is to come. We also see here something else about these these witnesses. Though they are mourning and speaking with authority of the coming fiery judgment, they are also persecuted. These proclaimers are persecuted, verse 7. When they have finished their testimony, which I don't think means that Everything that ever will be said has been said, and then it's over. But I think there's proclamation of the gospel, and then this stuff happens. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. These witnesses face attack for their testimony of Jesus. Now, this, this beast, we're going to see a lot more about the beast in chapter 13 and 17. So for now, we're going to say certainly John had in view uh, the Roman Empire in his day. But beyond that, we see there this, it's this demonic enemy of God's people who the beast's goal is to tempt them to deny Jesus and to attack them with vengeance if they will not. This is what the beast does. The beast is making war on these these two witnesses, which is an allusion to Daniel chapter 7, verse 21, where Daniel says, This horn, the beast, will, or he made war with the saints and prevailed over them. Speaking about this beast that John's talking about, Daniel sees it uh, far in the future and John sees it as present. Persecution will turn deadly. Not for every Christian, but if you, if you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted, Paul told Timothy. So whether it be mocking or being fired for your job or being disowned by friends and family or by giving your life, persecution is coming. And for many, many, many in Christian history, they have been put to death. You may even think of of Stephen in Acts chapter 8. As soon as he got up and he proclaimed the word, there even at the temple, proclaiming the word as a witness to the fact that Jesus should not have been crucified as a criminal, but rather that he was their Messiah and their king and that they put the Son of God to death. You remember what they did to him? Shut your mouth. And they killed him. We don't want to hear what the prophet has to say. Shut him up. There are bodies lying in the street here. To not bury a corpse in the ancient world was an act of shame and humiliation. This is the point. Not that the the prophets of the bodies will be laying in in the streets of Jerusalem, but that God's people will be slain without honor. 
This is Christian history. Whether it be Nero impaling Christians on stakes and setting them on fire to light his banquets. Or whether it be ISIS soldiers marching out Christian witnesses onto a beach and taking their heads off and leaving their bodies there to decay. Or there be North Korean oppressors dumping the bodies of Christians in piles of waste in, in their concentration camps. This is what happened. This is how God's people are treated in a world that hates Jesus. This opposition, this opposition is like that of Sodom, as it's mentioned here. This city that's famous for forsaking God in order to follow evil. It's like that of Egypt, the place of oppression where attempted to stamp out God's people. Do you notice also here, it's subtle, but I hope you saw the connection to, to our Lord. This is where their Lord was crucified. Do you notice it's their Lord? It's not just the Lord, but it's these who are suffering personally. He's our Lord What happened in Jerusalem, where Christ was crucified, happens to the church all over the world. The, the church is enduring the same sort of treatment that Jesus got. This is exactly what he promised, that a servant is not above his master. They hated the master, how much more you. Verse 9, for three and a half days, some from the peoples and the tribes and the languages of the nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them to be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Gloom hangs over these prophets of God. Their defeated corpses become the cause of celebration. It's like they instituted a new holiday. The day the prophets died. Hallelujah, they say. People from every tribe and language and nation celebrate that these speakers of truth have been silenced. No more will they say that we need to repent. No more will they say that it's not good people who go to heaven, but those who trust in Christ. No more will they tell us who to worship. No more will they tell us who to sleep with. No more will they tell us what to do with our bodies. No more, Psalm 2, will they hold us down with these bonds of this king that they proclaim. I'm sure glad that's not relevant today. Which of course it is which is one of the reasons I think it's so important to take the book of Revelation as it's intended to be taken, not just as future, but this is for those seven churches and every church that's ever been like them since the resurrection who suffer and endure suffering. This is intended to encourage us to keep trusting. This is what's coming, he says, but he will be with you. Now, how will the whole world see these defeated witnesses? Well, I used to think this was back before it was possible. What they would say is that someday it'll be live streamed somehow. There'll be TVs everywhere and you'll be able to see it all around the world. Well, that can't happen, right? Yeah. Nope. Now it is possible. And even though that's possible, I still don't think that's what the point is. 
These witnesses are the church who dwells all over the world. So this is why people from every tribe, tongue, and language are rejoicing over them being silenced whenever they're silenced. This is what's happening everywhere Christians are being silenced and put to death is that people cheer, talk no more. Now, I think we're supposed to see this and feel, and just notice a couple other things here. First, this is a sorrowful situation. Jesus came for people from every tribe and language and nation. Heaven will be filled with people from every tribe and language and nation, yet here we see their contemporaries, people they went to high school with, people they had parties with, people that they worked with, people they lived next door, people who are their contemporaries who are rejecting him. That's why the prophets wear sackcloth. Judgment comes upon those who reject Jesus. Now these three and a half days I think highlights the shortness of their defeat. The church may appear to be dead at times, but it will not be defeated. More on that in a moment. And I think also, once again, to see this connection with Christ. That just as Jesus promised, the church will suffer greatly, just as He did. Yet though He appeared defeated, He was not defeated. But he rose from the dead and overcame the grave. Verse 11. After the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Though the church appears defeated, it will be delivered. This picture of breath coming in and standing up, where is that in the Old Testament? Ezekiel chapter 37, where God's breath entered the dry bones of Israel and made them to stand prophesying of God's restoring Israel to the land following the Babylonian captivity. Well, in the same way, God will raise His people from the dead. And the persecution that they um, suffer now in spiritual Babylon, which is going to become a prominent theme through the rest of the book of Revelation. This, by the way, is, is why many people see Revelation as kind of a turning point. Because the themes, as we'll see beginning next week, are going to shift to satanic, demonic oppression and the great Babylon uh, oppressing the people. Those themes are going to grow here. And I, many see a lot of this right here being tied into that, that hinge that turns our eyes and our minds toward that. Now, much discussion as to whether or not we should see these final verses in chronological order has been made. I'm unsure. I think what is clear here. Is, is the return of, of Christ. That is what is in view here. The church here will be raptured. The church will be taken up to be with Jesus as he returns to bring judgment on the earth. This is what Revelation chapter 19 is. When Jesus comes with his, on the clouds with his people, they're caught up with him and he comes in judgment and we conquer with him. 
This great earthquake is a, a picture of, of judgment that comes upon the, the city. 7,000, seven again, a number of completeness. Uh, completeness. Thousand is a number for, for greatness. Complete greatness means a full and complete number of people are going to be consumed here in judgment. And there's discussion as to whether or not these who were, the rest of them, there in verse 13, who were terrified and gave glory to God of heaven, whether that giving to, well, first of all, the reason everybody's terrified when Jesus returns here is because all of a sudden, these witnesses who you've done everything you can to shut up and you've called idiots and you've bigots and you've, you've slandered and mocked and you've resisted them and the Jesus that they represent for so long, they've been on the wrong side of history, but all of a sudden now they're about to be on the right side of eternity and you are terrified because you see that you opposed them. This is why everybody here is trembling in fear. There's discussion whether that last phrase should lead us to believe that there will be some great revival at the end, maybe, or, or, or do they give glory to God in the same way that Nebuchadnezzar did when he was an unbeliever because of the great judgment that came? Unsure. So the one application I just want to encourage you, if you're here today and you know yourself to not be a Christian, I want to strongly encourage you, please, do not even just take that last little bit there or that idea that I hear so often. Be like, well, I'll see what happens on that day. And if he's real, then I'll believe in him. Please do not. This entire book is intended to warn you that there is not time for that. Today is the day of salvation. Turn from your sin and trust upon Christ. Verse 14. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is to come. The second woe is in chapter 9, verses 13 through 19 at the sixth trumpet. And now the final trumpet blows. The church has faithfully witnessed for 2,000 years of the coming judgment. And for 2,000 years, many have repented and found refuge in Jesus. And many have mocked and laughed and ignored the message. Well, they will ignore no more as the final trumpet is blown. Verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. This is where Handel's Messiah gets this from, by the way. And the, the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and they worshiped God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and saints, and for those who fear your name, both small and great, for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened. And the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. And there were flashings of lightning, rumblings, peelings of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. When the seventh seal was opened, there was silence in heaven. When the seventh trumpet is blown, <laughs> the voices of heaven speak and cry out in worship and praise to God. The second 
cycle of judgment closes with the second description that we've seen in the book of Revelation of Jesus' second coming. This scene's focus is the last judgment, the last, the last judgment and the lasting triumph of Christ. Just a couple things to notice here before we consider a couple applications. First, do you notice this final takeover? This takeover is, is official. When the seventh trumpet sounds, the voices cry out declaring that a transfer of power has occurred, a, take, a takeover has happened. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. He shall reign forever and ever. For so long, since, they, since the fall of the Garden of Eden, it has looked like death wins and sin wins and Satan wins. It's looked like that for so long, but no more. No more. And heaven is radiating with praise. A takeover has happened. Sin has no more place. No more evil. Christ has fully and finally overcome the reign of Satan here. There's also, so a takeover is official, there's also a thanksgiving that's offered. Thanksgiving is offered here. A praise service, service breaks out in heaven. Verse 16, the 24 elders sit on the thrones, they fall before God on their faces, and they worship. We give you thanks. We give thanks to you, O Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. Did you notice there? What is left out that's been repeated several times in Revelation? Who is to come? Why is that left out? Because it's here. That's right. Good. The eternal day has arrived. There's no more future hope. Hope is no more. You don't need it. You don't need hope anymore because it's there. Everything you've ever prayed for in regards to the deliverance from sin and evil and persecution, it's arrived. The amen has come and answered every prayer. Man, praise God. That's good. Time has come for the dead to be judged. All people will be judged according to their deeds. We'll see this in Revelation chapter 20, 11 through 15. Every person who has ever lived will be judged according to their deeds. Unbelievers will stand. Books will be opened. Everything they've ever done will be held up against the holiness of God and they will be condemned. And then believers, those who have trusted in Christ, everything they've ever done will be held up and all of their sin will be blotted out by the blood of Christ. And they will stand in his righteousness. And the righteous deeds that they have done by faith will be presented as evidence for them that they lived a life of faith by the power of the Spirit for the glory of God. Not saved by their works, but their works evidence their faith. This is why the book of Revelation is to be obeyed. We respond. Also for the rewarding of your servants. God will reward his servants. What will that be like? I don't know, but it'll be great. I mean, who, who knows? But we'll get him. We'll get him. And for the destroying of the destroyers of the earth. Evil does not conquer. Christ conquers. And all those who aligned with Satan will receive the judgment that Satan deserves. And then it concludes here with the temple being opened. Moses had made a copy of the temple on earth and the tabernacle as he was commanded to. This was the original here in heaven. 
And what we see is the centerpiece is the Ark of the Covenant. The most holy object in the tabernacle. Again, going to be symbolic here. The Ark symbolizes God's presence and His faithfulness in the Old Testament. And here, here, this innermost object of holiness that is always hidden from sight because if you touch it, you die in the Old Testament. Here, it's open. Just as when Christ died on the cross and the veil was torn in two that separated the people from the Holy of Holies and access was granted. Well, here now, access is granted to God. You see Him. You know Him, which is exactly how we see this later on where we shall see His face. His presence is there with His people forevermore. Praise God. What does this mean for us? Five simple things. Number one, God's people will face persecution. You will face persecution. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Do not allow that to terrify you. It, it, it should make you count the cost of following Jesus. But do not, ter- do not be terrified by the prospect of persecution because he is with you to the end of the age. Which is the second thing. That though persecution will come, God's people will be protected. God's people will face persecution and God's people will be protected. God's presence dwells among His people. He has set them apart. We've seen in Revelation, He has sealed them. We've seen in Revelation chapter 7, the temple they form is known by God and measured by John to prove its security as we've seen here in chapter 11. The fact that there is persecution and protection at the same time is not a contradiction. God does not protect us from persecution. He protects us through persecution. There will be suffering and trial and death in this life, but there will be vindication and resurrection and sustaining forevermore in the life to come. Those Christians dying that we've talked about through this message, that was not the end of them for them when they were left there dead. The, the taunters looked like they won, but they will not be taunting when those same people are raised from the dead and will be raised forevermore with Jesus. Number three, notice here that God's word will prevail. <laughs> God never forgets his promises, y'all. I mean, this book is full of them. He knows what he said to Daniel and Ezekiel and Elijah and Moses. He knows what he said in, in Numbers. He knows what he said in, in Habakkuk and Zechariah. And all the way through this book, he knows what he said to all of them. His word does not return void. It will prevail. So we who are to be his witnesses can trust his word as we proclaim his word. Trust God's word as you proclaim his word. Fearlessly proclaim the gospel in the face of persecution because his word does not return void. And the goal is not to find comfort or just make it through and not get hurt. The goal is for Christ to be magnified. That happens through the proclaiming of his word. Fourthly, the church will prevail. So God's word will prevail, but the church will prevail as well. I could tell all kinds of stories here. I'll tell one. The Chinese 
Chinese Christians suffered greatly in the 1940s and 50s, particularly under the communist regime. Well, in 1958, the the wife of the leader of the Communist Party said this, Christianity in China has been confined to museums. It is dead and buried. 1958. Well, today, some 100 million believers in China would say, no ma'am, that is not true. Because the church may look struck down, but it is not destroyed. And Jesus will raise up his church, and the church will prevail. All of this is intended to make us look to Jesus. He is the everlasting King, the ever-living High Priest who has all authority, who weeps over the plight of sinners, who speaks with fire from heaven, who worked miracles to authenticate His message, who suffered at the hands of sinners and died. The earth shook when He did. After that three days, He was raised and He ascended. We are with Him. We can trust Him. He will raise us too. Fifthly and finally, God's enemies will face judgment. The book of Revelation serves the soul of all people. For believers, it is intended to encourage and convict and conform and to help us to persevere. For those who do not know the Lord Jesus, this is intended to be a solemn warning that the King of glory is coming. And because He's merciful, He he has given amnesty in this day when high treason runs amok. He has offered amnesty. He's offered forgiveness if you will but humble yourself and turn from your sin and trust trust in Him. He will go from being your judge to your Father. He will receive you as His son and daughter. And He is a good Father. Do not forsake the One who loves you so much that He would give His only Son and then give His Word to testify. Do not forsake Him. But know for those who do, the third woe is coming. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank You for Your Word. We pray, Father, that You would help us to trust that You indeed are building Your church. You do it by Your Word as it testifies to the Lord Jesus. You do it through Your messengers of whom we are, these witnesses. And God, that it happens despite persecution. So Lord, would You give us courage? Would You help us to give courage in the face of persecution? Would You help us to have confidence that You will protect? God, will You help us to believe that Your Word will prevail and help us as we proclaim it? Help us to not retreat, but to love people even as You did by risking all make Jesus known. And we pray for the suffering church around the world that you would encourage them even today. God, we pray for the the many who do not know you. Some in this room, some in our families, certainly those in our city. Oh God, would you please show mercy? Would you bring revival in a way that only you could? Use us and the proclaiming of your word to do it. We pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen.